Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Will the judge unseal the search warrant affidavit in the FBI's raid on former President Trump's home? A court hearing's been scheduled. Republicans vow to go after the FBI after its raid on Trump's home. What a Republican majority in Congress could do. President Biden signs the Inflation Reduction Act into law, expanding government power over taxes and Biden's pledge. No one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more. China sanctions Taiwanese officials and resumes military drills in response to U.S. lawmakers visiting the island. What U.S. officials have to say about rising tensions. Iran responds to final negotiations over its nuclear deal. Critics of the deal say complete sanctions on the regime would more effectively halt its ability to produce nuclear weapons. And the NBA is taking unprecedented steps to get their fans to vote, but not for the All-Star Game. How the league is supporting the U.S. midterms. We have more updates on the FBI's raid on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. The federal judge overseeing the case is now scheduling a hearing. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt approved the search warrant for the FBI raid on Trump's home. He's avoided ruling on whether to unseal the warrant affidavit. Instead, he has a hearing this Thursday to hear arguments in person. Judicial Watch and a number of other businesses and groups filed motions to unseal the documents two days after the raid. They argue that it is essential that the public understands as soon as possible the basis for the government's action. Meanwhile, the Justice Department argued to the court that keeping the documents sealed would protect the integrity of an ongoing law enforcement investigation that implicates national security. Trump's son, Eric Trump, spoke about what his family would do next in an interview with Fox News Monday night. You still have the surveillance tape, is that correct? Will you, are you allowed to share that with the country? Absolutely, Sean, at the right time. And your body cam point was spot on. That's why cops wear body cams. They don't tell you to turn off cameras. They want transparency, and that's not what happened here. A spokesperson for Trump made public an email in which the Justice Department acknowledges that FBI agents took Trump's passports during the raid. And the Justice Department told NBC News that they have returned the passports to Trump. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And Trump confirmed on Truth Social earlier this evening that his passports have been returned by the DOJ and FBI. And Republican lawmakers say they plan to go after the FBI if they get the majority in Congress. But how much could they actually do? NTD's Jason Perry finds out more. The FBI raid of former President Donald Trump's home has left many people with concerns. Recently, Republicans said if the GOP wins the majority in Congress, they are going to do something about it. House Republican majority will leave no stone unturned when it comes to transparency and accountability into the brazen politicization of Joe Biden's DOJ and FBI targeting their political opponents. Mike Davis, founder of the Article 3 Project Defending Rule of Law, explained that under the Constitution, there has to be a detached judge to sign the warrant. He further added that the same judge who signed the warrant to raid Trump's home recently recused himself from the Trump versus Hillary lawsuit. If Judge Reinhardt had to recuse six weeks ago, how did his judicial conflict go away in the last six weeks? And the, the clear answer is it didn't. But what could Republicans actually do if they take control of Congress after midterms? I asked this question to Mark Meckler, the president and founder of Convention of States Action, which is concerned with bringing power back to the states and the people. Their legal role as Congress is to provide oversight to the executive branch, the FBI being law enforcement part of the executive branch. So they can hold committee hearings. They can set up commissions and panels to do investigations. They can subpoena documents. They can request and require that people come before Congress and testify. But I'm going to be honest with you, Jason. The reality is they don't do anything. He also mentioned that the House of Representatives has the power of the purse and they can withhold funding from the FBI until they work through certain issues. Then Meckler explained another possible scenario. My perspective is right now and the perspective of my organization 
is that we should do away with the FBI. And this is something that Congress can actually do. The House of Representatives has the power of the purse. That means all spending has to initiate with the House of Representatives. And they can simply say, we're not going to give money to the FBI as currently constituted. So this is their chance to enforce whatever they want to on the FBI. I personally think what they ought to do is break up the agency, send its necessary functions, and there are some, send those out to other agencies, uh, create a new agency if they need to. But I believe the FBI is beyond reform at this point. We reached out to the FBI for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Biden is back from vacation today, and he's signed off on a bill to spend hundreds of billions of dollars while expanding the IRS. The bill, named the Inflation Reduction Act, is packed with party priorities from health care to climate change measures. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. President Biden is back at the White House, his top order of business signing a budget bill worth upwards of $700 billion. With the stroke of a pen, the president has expanded the government's role in health care and measures to counter climate change. A historic $400 billion investment in climate change and $60 billion for health care. While changes to the tax code are aimed at raking in enough money to pay down the deficit. By another $300 billion by having the wealthy and big corporations finally begin to pay part of their fair share. The bill caps the price of prescription drugs at $2,000 per year, with insulin capped at $35 for Medicare recipients. And the authorization of Medicare to negotiate some drug prices. And tax credits will go to those who start shifting towards renewable energy. Democrats on Capitol Hill swiftly and single-handedly passed the bill last week without a single Republican vote. With only 50 Democratic votes in the Senate, over an intransigent Republican minority is nothing short of amazing. Republicans have criticized the bill, calling it inflationary, particularly taking issue with the hiring of tens of thousands of new IRS agents. Nevertheless, the president promises it won't increase audits on low- and middle-income Americans. And I'm keeping my campaign commitment. No one, let me emphasize, no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more. While some economists have signaled their support for the new law, others have suggested it will not lower inflation as intended. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Also today, the Department of Education announced it will automatically cancel nearly $4 billion more in student loan debt. This move will affect more than 200,000 former students who attended the for-profit ITT Technical Institute. The institute shut down in 2016 shortly after the government pulled the plug on its federal funding because the school had failed to show it was in compliance with certain accreditation standards. Now, in total, President Biden has canceled nearly $32 billion in student debt. It mostly affects borrowers who were defrauded or those who are permanently disabled. Biden has extended the pandemic-related pause on federal student loan payments several times, the current pause is set to expire at the end of this month. And in election news, primaries in Wyoming today. Will Liz Cheney keep her seat in the House? According to polls, a Trump-backed candidate is expected to win. Liz Cheney is projected to lose her bid for a fourth term as Wyoming's lone congressional representative on Tuesday. According to polls, Trump-endorsed Harriet Hageman is likely to take home the nomination. Hagman says that Cheney spends too much time on the January 6th committee. She focuses an awful lot of time on the January 6th committee, but she's not addressing the issues that are important to Wyoming. Some Wyoming Republican voters seem to be upset over Cheney's attacks on former President Trump. Over 70 percent of the state of Wyoming voted Republican in the last presidential election, and she turned right around and voted against us. She was our representative, not her own. Look at this Liz Cheney. Is she Trump traveled to Wyoming over Memorial Day weekend to campaign against Cheney and endorse Hageman. According to a University of Wyoming poll, Hageman leads Cheney 57 percent to 28 percent. And of those, 41 percent say they're voting more against Cheney than for Hageman. 
Cheney defended her anti-Trump stance in the past, saying she believes in conservative values, not in one single person. We are now embracing a cult of personality, and I won't, uh, I won't be part of that, and, and I will always stand for my oath and stand for the truth. Some Wyoming Republicans say that's exactly why they support her. Liz, I feel like, put herself out there possibly to her own political peril, but her standing up for the truth and the Constitution is what got her my vote. While many Wyoming voters don't support her anymore, Cheney has gained popularity for her criticism of Trump outside of Wyoming. Cheney's campaign appears more oriented to future national ambitions than to winning re-election to Wyoming's House seat. She has done few public events, and the most recent public statement on her campaign website from last week isn't Wyoming-centric. Hagman said in the past that she would visit all 23 Wyoming counties at least once a year if elected. And the U.S. is responding to Beijing's latest moves against Taiwan. China is sanctioning Taiwanese officials and resuming military drills around the democratically ruled island. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Amid rising tensions, China is sanctioning seven Taiwanese officials, including the island's representative to the U.S., Xiaobi Kim. Beijing now bars them from traveling to or making money in mainland China, while accusing them of supporting Taiwan independence. That's despite the Taiwanese representative recently reiterating. We will not escalate. We will not provoke. We are committed to maintaining the status quo. Beijing sanctions also come as it conducts fresh military drills around Taiwan. That's over recent visits by U.S. lawmakers to the self-ruled island, which China has vowed to annex by force if necessary. Meanwhile, the U.S. has called China's drills provocative uh, and totally unnecessary. And while the sanctions have little practical effect, as senior Taiwanese officials do not visit mainland China, Taiwan's foreign ministry says it shows how Beijing is trying to formulate a crisis. It again proves that China is overreacting and trying to create a crisis with excuses. We will not acknowledge threats and intimidation by an authoritarian regime. And the U.S. also accuses Beijing of overreacting. It is not the United States. It is not Taiwan. Uh, it is uh, the PRC that is challenging the status quo. Meanwhile, reports cite Taiwanese officials as saying that a third U.S. congressional delegation will visit the island by the end of August. Earlier this month, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi led a delegation there, and Senator Ed Markey led a second one this week. Iris Tao, NTD News. And turning now to Iran. The regime today submitted a response to what's been described as a final roadmap in negotiations that aim to restore Iran's nuclear deal with several world powers, a deal that critics have long decried as dangerous. Earlier today, I spoke with Bart Markoyes, a former Bush administration official who served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy and International Affairs at the Department of Energy for his take on the latest developments. Bart Markoyes, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. Now, Iran has submitted its final response to the EU's final proposal on the Iran nuclear deal. Apparently, they're asking for flexibility from the U.S. So what exactly is holding this deal back? Uh, you know, the whole deal has been skewed from the start. It's a bad deal, and we should walk away from it. We, there should never be an Iran deal in the first place. All they ever do is ask us for flexibility. And you notice they never give any flexibility from their side. The whole point of the discussions here has is supposedly to make sure they never develop nuclear weapons. But the point for the Iranians has been to delay and slow roll and distract the United States and our allies while they develop their nuclear weapons. Once they develop them, what are we going to do? And as you know, there have been a series of attacks on U.S. soil that are allegedly linked to Iran. Um, do you think these complicate the talks at all? They should be complicating it. It's not just Joe Biden. This is a, this is a concerted effort by Barack Obama and the people from the Obama administration to push this deal through. I like to make fun of Joe Biden because he's an easy target. 
But he really is not in charge of this. This is Barack Obama's deal, and Barack Obama has been pushing it since the day he became president. And he's treating Biden's term as his third term, and he is pushing this deal through. For some reason, he wants Iran to have nuclear weapons. That's the only conclusion I can draw from it. And nothing about the deal makes sense for the West. These are people who will use nuclear weapons if they have them. North Korea looks moderate in comparison with the Ayatollahs running Iran. We have Salman Rushdie being attacked, nearly murdered. He's probably blinded for life. He'll probably have liver damage for life. They've probably shortened his life by 10 or 15 years. There is a hit on John Bolton. He cleverly said, um, I, I'm a little embarrassed that the price tag is only a tenth of what Salman Rushdie's life is worth. Uh, but they are actively attacking people on our soil, members of our government. Bolton is not the only one. There are several other people. Mike Pompeo is, uh, is being stalked. Uh, there are several other people whose names are not as familiar to the American voters. But they're attacking people from the American government, and we're sitting there you know, sucking our thumbs, pretending that that it's not happening. And it's shocking to me. We are letting them get nuclear weapons, and we're leaving it up to our one tiny but mighty ally to do something about it. And critics say that um, continued negotiations after these attacks signals U.S. weakness worldwide. What's your take on that? It does. It does. This is a signal to everybody. It, it's a good thing that Taiwan, for example, has such strong support in the United States, strong bipartisan support among voters, among state legislators, governors, members of Congress, senators, because the administration would sell Taiwan down the river in a heartbeat if it weren't for the broad strong support of all the American people for the people of Taiwan. Ukraine has got to be looking at this and thinking, my gosh, please get that next shipment of weapons to us because this might be the last. Every ally in the world has to be looking at us thinking, are you guys really going to be there when we need you? Or are you folding and going home? Because if you can't even defend your own people, how can we trust you to defend our people? Now, President Biden has said that he thinks diplomacy is the best way to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. What's your stance on that? What diplomacy? These are people, I was a United States diplomat for many years. It was my first career. And these are people who think diplomacy it means you talk softly and, and you carry around a, a tray of cookies and wear striped pants. Diplomacy means you know how to stop a war before you start firing shots. I'll give you a great example of diplomacy. James Baker was a great Secretary of State. He came to Yemen when I was a diplomat there during the Iraq War. Saddam Hussein was uh, had invaded Kuwait, and Yemen had the misfortune to be on the Security Council. Uh, and they were voting with Saddam Hussein, and they said, we're a sovereign nation. And James Baker said, yes, you are. And so are we. And if you vote that way, you have every right, but we will cut off all foreign aid to you, no Peace Corps, no, no AID, no foreign aid, and no cooperation. You're on your own. Saddam's your ally, go to it. And he did. And he let them know, we are not a nation to be trifled with. That's what diplomacy is. It's words that prevent to war, not words that in, are an open invitation to war. And that's what Biden is doing. Now, the EU has been an indirect um, go-between in these talks, and they seem quite keen to get the deal done. Why do you think that is? All they care about is money. They're suffering. They suffered under Trump with the sanctions that we put on Iran under Trump. Peugeot had to shut down their operations in Iran, Citroën. Uh, uh, Daimler-Benz, several other companies that were European companies that were active there. It cost them a lot of money and a lot of jobs. And they know that Iranian nuclear missiles will not be pointed at them, at least not at first. And, and the other negotiator on our behalf, supposedly, in these talks is Russia. How can we be fighting a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine 
in the front door and in the back door going to Russia and saying, please represent American interests in Tehran. Nothing about this makes any sense. American leadership would mean that we would stand up and say, this is the path, complete sanctions on Iran until they stop developing missiles and warheads, and sanctions on any company anywhere in the world that does business with Iran and Europe, you'd better follow because we're strong and you depend on us and you'd better follow along because this is in everybody's collective interest. And we're not doing that. All right, Bart Marcois, thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. And up next, an update to the fatal Alec Baldwin shooting last year. Medical examiners are letting the actor off, but the FBI isn't. And in Tennessee, a judge okays a class action lawsuit by illegal immigrants claiming discrimination. We'll bring you the details in a moment on NTD News. speaks we don't just scratch the surface we want to go wide and deep understanding of the issues of the day we really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show we don't just talk to experts and newsmakers which of course are extremely important but we also want to hear from the American people so the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation News on the Alec Baldwin case. Government medical examiners say the fatal shooting on a movie set last year was an accident. However, an FBI report doesn't align with Baldwin's account of what happened that day. Medical investigators published a report on Monday saying Baldwin didn't intentionally kill the cinematographer on a movie set last year. The investigators concluded it was an accident because they say there was no obvious intent to cause harm or death. They also say there was no proof that the revolver was intentionally loaded with live ammunition. However, an FBI report says that the gun could not have been fired without Baldwin pulling the trigger. That goes against what Baldwin said last year, which is that he only pulled the hammer back but never pulled the trigger. Prosecutors have not yet decided whether to file any charges in the case. And in immigration news, a federal judge has granted class status to a group of Hispanic immigrants. They are suing the federal agents who arrested them, saying they were targeted because of their race. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. In 2018, the largest immigration raid in Tennessee history happened. It started as a tax evasion investigation of a business owner, but turned into a raid on more than 100 Hispanic immigrants. Recently, a federal judge ruled the immigrants could join together as a class in a lawsuit against federal agents. They claim agents targeted them because of their race. Jessica Vaughn of the Center for Immigration Studies said it's fairly typical for employers who evade taxes to hire illegal workers. And if it turns out that those workers are in the country illegally, well, they may be subject to consequences. It sounds like almost all of the employees at this particular plant were Hispanic. So it may be difficult to show any discrimination if they acted against everyone. But I wondered if the legal system had changed since 2018. Do you think the court will review this differently than the court might have reviewed it back in 2018? No, I, I think the court will be applying the same standards of review and evaluating this uh, in accordance with federal law. Um, but one potential difference in this uh, moving forward now under the Biden administration is uh, we need to watch whether or not the Biden Justice Department and Biden Department of Homeland Security will be defending these agents as vigorously as probably would have been the case under the Trump administration. NTD reached out to the Department of Justice, but we didn't hear back from them before broadcast time. 
A spokesperson for the Southern Poverty Law Center told NTD in a phone conversation that the workers' attorneys won't comment because they don't want to litigate this case in the media. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. American Airlines is betting on supersonic travel. The company just agreed to buy some jets from airplane maker Boom Supersonic. It's the second major U.S. airline to do this in the past two months. NTD's Phil Zoe reports. Sonic boom. Supersonic speed is when you're traveling faster than the speed of sound, or Mach 1. Right now, commercial airplanes travel at around 600 miles per hour, which is just under the speed of sound, at around 800 miles per hour. The biggest luxury we have in life is time. Kathy Savitt, president of Boom Supersonic, says they're building a plane that can go twice the speed of that. Our flagship product, Overture, will be a completely sustainable supersonic airliner flying 65 to 80 passengers going Mach 1.7 over water and Mach 0.94 over land. That makes New York to London in three or Seattle to Tokyo in four hours all possible. American Airlines is buying 20 of these planes, while United is buying 15 of them. But is there anything even faster? Basically, you can fly from New York to London in one hour. Mikhail Kokorich says yes. Some call him the Elon Musk of Russia. Others, the next Igor Sikorsky, the inventor of the helicopter. He's actually the CEO of Destinus, a company trying to build a hyperplane that travels at Mach 5, which is five times the speed of sound. We love speed because our life is very short, and we measure our distance with a, a time, not with a distance. So we say, hey, we're living in five hours, like uh, on two hours of flight. Coco Rich says air travel today is too slow. If flights were shorter and faster, people would get to see more of the world more often. If you like to live in like in Bali or you like to live in Dubai because of zero taxes, or you want to live in Costa Rica and go to New York just for the meetings and fly the same day back and sleep in your home, it will change the life of millions of the people. Kokorich says he expects his hyperplane to start delivering cargo in around five to seven years, but for passengers who will have to wait a decade or more. But even for Boom Supersonic's plane, first test flight is not scheduled until 2026, and it isn't expected to carry passengers until 2029. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a university in California is now cataloging when people oppose critical race theory. We'll look at how much opposition CRT is getting and what places don't want the theory in their schools. And the NBA is encouraging Americans to vote in the coming midterm elections. They're doing what they can to make sure everyone is free on election day. Dave Martin has more when we return on NTD News. Over to the West Coast, a public California university is now tracking and making records of any opposition made to critical race theory. A team at the University of California, Los Angeles has created a national database to, quote, track attacks on critical race theory. UCLA's Critical Race Studies program, part of the university's School of Law, developed the database titled the CRT Forward Tracking Project. Program researchers have screened 24,000 media articles since August 2021, counting 479 instances of anti-CRT activity. According to the data, most anti-CRT proposals have occurred in Florida, Virginia, Missouri, and the U.S. Congress. More than 20% of the recorded activity happened on the local school board level. Californians have used five out of the eight proposed anti-CRT enforcement measures to push back on CRT at local schools. One instance was when the Placentia Yorba Linda School Board voted to ban the teaching of CRT in classrooms in April, ending months of debate in the Orange County District. Supporters of the ban said CRT is a divisive ideology that pushes a political narrative. But the UCLA program says that opponents are using the term CRT incorrectly. The school defines CRT as, quote, the study of systemic racism in law, policy, and society. 
Project Director Tefa Natalie Alexander said in a statement, the project was created to help people understand the breadth of the attacks on the ability to speak truthfully about race and racism through the campaigns against CRT. Critics say CRT pushes a worldview founded in Marxism, analyzing all aspects of life through a modernized lens of racism rather than the dated concept of class struggle. The UCLA project is funded by a $400,000 grant from the Lumina Foundation, a private Indianapolis-based foundation with about $1.4 billion in assets, according to the nonprofit's website. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Meanwhile, California universities are actively striving to achieve more diversity on campus. This applies to both students admitted and the faculty. But one lawyer says the efforts could lead to more division. University faculty may be facing new types of segregation. That's according to Daniel Ortner, a lawyer at the Pacific Legal Foundation. He explained to California Insider's CMF Karami diversity statements, which are required on college campuses, would group people by identity rather than treating them as individuals. So it's requiring faculty to really pledge their allegiance to ideas regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion that are you know, politically toxic, politically divisive ideas regarding race, regarding um, equity. The idea that you know you need to treat students differently based on their race, uh, ultimately, to, to, in order to give some students a leg up, you need to treat people differently and divide them based on their race. That, that's the core of this DEI idea. DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Ortner says many universities have a rubric that looks for how a person expresses their awareness of race issues. You know, if you say what Chief Justice Roberts of the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know that the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. You know, something simple like that. If you express the, your a, a belief in color blindness that everyone should be treated equally, you're you're going to get a low score. You're not going to get hired. Ortner says many UC schools have been doing pilot testing where they only looked at diversity statements when hiring. If faculty did not get a good score, they would not be looked at for anything else. You could be a Nobel laureate. You could be, you know, have a, have a, a, a theory to cure cancer. You know, you could be Albert Einstein. It doesn't matter who you are, what your research is. You're not going to get looked at. You're going to get passed over if you don't have a good diversity statement. And so that, I think, is really frightening. It means, you know, they're not looking for the best quality talent. They're looking for those that are most in line ideologically with the mission, with this, this mission of, of DEI. Those who speak out with an opposing opinion or who are not in line with the school's ideas are often targeted for investigation. There's a professor that I've spoken to uh, out um, in Florida, for instance, at UCF, uh, Charles Negi, who, uh, because he's, he made a tweet criticizing um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and criticizing some of the, the anti-racism efforts, uh, he was um, interrogated for nine hours by uh, bureaucrats at the university. They asked him about every single statement he'd ever made in a classroom for 15 years um, in order to find a reason to fire him. Ortner has been involved with multiple lawsuits surrounding diversity of thought on college campuses in California. According to Ortner, this hiring process will eliminate diverse thoughts among staff, and as a result, students would not be challenged with new ideas. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Tiger Woods met today with several of the PGA's top golfers at the Wilmington Country Club in Delaware. They're discussing a growing threat that is the Live Golf Tour. Live Golf has lured players to their startup league with events featuring significantly higher purses, guaranteed payouts for every participant, and hefty signing bonuses, reportedly more than $100 million for some at the top just to join. But Woods has been outspoken in his criticism of players switching to live. In July, he was quoted as saying they've turned their back on what has allowed them to get to this position. And he's backed up the talk as well, turning down a reported $700 to $800 million to join the Saudi-funded league. Meanwhile, the second FedEx Cup playoff event starts Thursday with the BMW Championship in Wilmington, Delaware. In baseball news, San Diego All-Star Fernando Tatis has been suspended for 80 games after testing positive for Clostebol, a performance-enhancing drug that's in violation of baseball's drug policy. The suspension is without pay and starts immediately. 
The 23-year-old Tatis missed the final 47 games of this season and the first 33 of next season, although any postseason games the Padres play this year would also count toward that total. The suspension will cost Tatis more than $3 million in salary. For San Diego, though, his loss can't be overstated. The former All-Star has finished in the top four of the MVP voting each of the past two years. In addition, he was set to star in a stacked lineup with Manny Machado and the newly acquired Juan Soto. The Padres risked a lot of their future, giving up their four biggest minor league prospects to acquire Soto and give them one of the most formidable offenses in baseball. Tatis has already missed the entire season with a wrist injury suffered in an off-season motorcycle accident. He issued a statement Monday apologizing for his suspension while saying he inadvertently took a medication to treat ringworm that contained Clostebol. The Padres currently hold a two-game lead over Milwaukee for the final playoff position. And in NBA news, the league has announced they will not hold any games on Election Day, which is November 8, in order to encourage fans to get out and vote. Teams are encouraged to share local election information with their fans as well. The move is unique in sports. The NHL is scheduled to have 11 games played that day, 8 on U.S. soil. The NFL almost never has Tuesday games, this year is no exception, while baseball's World Series is scheduled to conclude the week before. As far as voting is concerned, all 435 U.S. House seats are up for taking, as well as more than 30 Senate races. The NBA's full schedule will be announced on Wednesday. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Chinese tech giant Tencent quietly buying shares of the world's largest game developers. What influence could they have over people who play those games? And Russian President Vladimir Putin seeking closer ties with North Korea. In a letter to Kim Jong-un, Putin said the two countries should work together. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. Decisions mean for your tomorrow. We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Thank you for joining us. Entity Business. I'm Paul Tencent isn't a household name in America, but if you play video games, you may have come into contact with it. And it's quietly building its ownership of the world's largest game developers. NTD's Arlene Richards brings us this story. Chinese tech giant Tencent has been quietly buying a significant share of the world's biggest video game companies. In the first half of 2021, it completed one game-related deal every two and a half days. It owns 100% of Riot Games, which means it owns the super popular League of Legends. It owns 40% of Epic Games, which is home to smash hit Fortnite, as well as majority, minority, and undisclosed shares in a ton of other firms. Any company in China is completely controlled by the Chinese Communist Party and must support the Chinese Communist Party's direction uh, and goals. Casey Fleming is the CEO of Black Ops Partners, a global risk strategy and counterintelligence firm. Fleming says any technology coming from China is a weaponized technology. It's weaponized to, uh, to weaken the United States and the values of the West. And that's, that's named, the name of that is called hybrid warfare, to weaken your adversary and make you stronger. Fleming believes China wants to influence people who play video games, such as children with pro-China, pro-communist values. The amount of say that Tencent has in any individual game changes game to game. It's this constant push and pull between what the audience want, 
what the original developers want, and then what the executives want. Josh Stripe Hayes is the host of the Josh Stripe Hayes YouTube channel, where he plays and reviews video games. As for pro-CCP propaganda... I don't know if we have any specific proof of that happening yet, or any games that have said they are overtly doing it. If anything like that happened, then the internet, especially sites like Reddit or IGN, would likely be reporting on these kind of things. He says Tencent has generally been associated with monetization. They frequently lock the best parts of a game behind a paywall, which players find unfair. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And in the UK, Moderna is bringing out a new two-strain COVID-19 booster that vaccinates against the original Wuhan strain of the virus and the Omicron variant. Rollout of the vaccine is due to start in the fall for the over 50s and the clinically vulnerable. NTD's Malcolm Hudson spoke to a doctor about the new booster. The government is rolling out a new COVID booster marketed as a bivalent vaccine because it produces antibodies for two different COVID strains, the original Wuhan strain and the Omicron variants. It will be offered to over 50s and the clinically vulnerable from early September. I spoke to Dr. Tony Hinton, a former surgeon who worked for the NHS for 30 years and who is now a consultant at New Victoria Hospital. Hi, Tony. Thanks for, thanks for meeting me. Thank um, you very much for asking me. Um, so this, this new vaccine targets the original strain of COVID as well as uh, the Omicron strain. Um, so how, how prevalent is the original strain of COVID right now? Yeah, so this is a new vaccine from Moderna, and it's supposed to target the Wuhan strain and Omicron, and Pfizer are coming out with a similar vaccine. Now, the problem is Wuhan variant has virtually totally disappeared. And the version of Omicron that they've used to produce this vaccine is something called BA1. Now, BA1 first originated around about November in South Africa and December in the UK. And that has also virtually disappeared. We're now up to BA5. And by the time they come to give this vaccine in another couple of months' time, who knows what um, variant will be on by then. Hinton said that Omicron was itself almost like the ideal vaccine because it was so mild. No injections were needed, and it gives much better ongoing protection than any of the vaccinations. Hinton explained that with a natural strain like Omicron, the body develops immunity to about 20 different parts of the virus. Whereas this new Moderna vaccine only produces antibodies for two spike proteins, one from the Wuhan strain and one from Omicron BA1. Do you think there will be many people who will actually take this new vaccine? Will there be much uptake with it? Well, I think in the UK, the, 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 there are many people that have had two vaccines. But once you get to the third dose, the booster, the numbers go down. And I think the number that have had a fourth jab has gone down even further. So I think people will get tired of being encouraged to have endless vaccines. Hinton also said he listened to an interview with the director of Moderna on the radio. But he was asked, for instance, did they have any data to show it reduced the chance of getting infected? And basically there was a lot of bluster, but the answer was, no, they didn't have any such data. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of money being spent for no good return on people's health, it, that that same money could be used to a lot better effect in the health service. Uh, thank you very much for your time today, Tony. Pleasure. And turning now to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, multiple explosions today rocked Russian military facilities in Crimea. The blasts at an ammunition depot led to the evacuation of thousands and are thought to have caused extensive damage. Russia's defense ministry has called it an act of sabotage. Ukraine's president called for new sanctions against Russia on Monday as he warned of the consequences of a potential catastrophe at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Shelling near the plant, Europe's largest, has caused widespread alarm, with the world nuclear watchdog warning that there could be a disaster if the fighting does not stop. New satellite imagery released by Planet Labs 
purports to show the aftermath of shelling near the plant, which Russia seized in March. Ukrainian and Russian-installed officials have traded accusations over who is responsible for the attacks. In a late-night Monday address, Vladimir Zelensky called for Russia's nuclear sector to be sanctioned. If a terrorist state allows itself to completely ignore the international community's demands, and furthermore, on such a sensitive topic, this clearly indicates the need for immediate action. Any radiation incident at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant can be a blow to the countries of the European Union, Turkey, Georgia, and countries from more distant regions. Everything depends only on the direction and the strength of the wind. If Russia's actions lead to a catastrophe, the consequences may hit those who yet remain silent. Meanwhile, a Russian-backed court in Ukraine's Donetsk charged five Europeans on Monday with being mercenaries. The men from Britain, Croatia and Sweden were captured while fighting with Ukrainian forces. Russian media reports that three of them could face the death penalty. All have pleaded not guilty. Foreign governments have dismissed the trials as illegitimate. In June, three other foreign nationals were sentenced to death on similar charges. Russia sent troops into Ukraine in February in what it calls a special military operation to demilitarize its neighbor. Ukraine and its Western backers accuse Moscow of waging an imperial-style war of conquest. And Russian President Vladimir Putin is seeking closer ties with North Korea. In a letter to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un this week, Putin wrote that the two countries should work together to expand bilateral relations. He said that such efforts would promote security and stability on the Korean peninsula and in the Northeast Asia. According to the North Korean state media, Kim replied that the friendship between the two countries has developed since World War II and their strategic cooperation has reached a new level. He said their common goal is to thwart the military threat posed by so-called hostile forces. Kim didn't specify what the hostile forces are, but North Korea has accused the U.S. and its allies of pursuing a hostile policy, especially in regards to preventing North Korea's nuclear program. And coming up, what the hottest zip codes are right now in the housing market. Plus, some home buying tips from Realtor.com. Stay tuned for more. housing market is cooling off in general, but in certain areas it's still very tight. Real estate website Realtor.com just released its annual list of the hottest zip codes in the country today. Ranking number one on this year's list is zip code 14618, Brighton, near Rochester, New York. Five of the top ten zip codes are from New England in New Hampshire and Maine. Homes with zip codes on the top 10 list are usually sold in about a week, and they get nearly four times more views than a typical U.S. listing. A key theme of this year's ranking is demand from out-of-zip home buyers. They're being driven by factors like affordability and convenient travel to big East Coast cities. Chief economist at Realtor.com, Daniel Hale says Americans are redefining their priorities in order to achieve home ownership amid rising inflation and mortgage rates. NTD's Don Ma spoke to Hale about the list and also asked her for some tips for home buyers. Danielle, pleasure having you on today. So Realtor.com just released the top 10 hottest zip codes for the housing market. Would you mind telling us more about this year's list? For example, what's the key takeaways? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this year's hottest zip codes list shows that markets in the Northeast and in New England in particular are really attracting buyer attention and keeping those real estate markets very, very competitive. As buyers are grappling with inflation and economic uncertainty, they're looking to try to lower their housing costs, which makes these affordable markets really top of mind. One thing, though, I'm curious about, so nine out of the top 10 are making the list for the very first time, right? What is it about these zip codes that help them make it to the list? These zip codes are a combination of um, zip codes in cities that offer really good value for the dollar. So sometimes it's a really um, 
low cost area in an expensive market. So it's a good alternative to nearby pricey areas. In other cases, we've got some high cost uh, zips in affordable metros that give buyers some really good bang for the buck. Um, but the key thing is they're trying to get a little bit further away from the big cities to drop their housing costs, but still remain in a distance that allows them to get into the downtown markets like Boston, New York, or DC, if they need to commute to work occasionally. And you mentioned the current housing environment, right? What has been the impact uh, of the rate hikes on the housing market and, and as well as the sentiment? Yeah, so the Federal Reserve is raising short-term rates. That has caused mortgage rates to go way up. They're up about two percentage points or more above where they were at this time last year. That's drastically cut into housing affordability. So it costs a lot more, more than 50% more, in fact, to buy today's home relative to what it cost a year ago. What that means is buyers are getting choosier. We're seeing them be a lot more selective as they're trying to make the dollars and cents work with what they're looking for in the housing market. That's made affordability top of mind, and buyers have shown that they're willing to move to more affordable areas in order to find it. So that's one of the things that's really driving this list, and it meshes with some of the data that we see on cross-market shopping traffic on Realtor.com. So in light of those rate hikes from, from the Fed, are you seeing that more home buyers are being priced out of the home market? Yeah, those rate hikes are making it more expensive for people to buy a home today. And that's causing a lot of shoppers to reevaluate their plans and some shoppers to just put their plans on hold and maybe continue renting while they save up money uh, to try to get into the housing market at a later point in time. So on that note, what are some strategies that home buyers are undertaking to achieve home ownership? Yeah, so the big important strategies are to be really on top of your finances in today's market. With costs high, you want to make sure that buying a home will fit in your budget. Um, if you want to, to make it easier for a home to fit in your budget, you can follow the strategy that a lot of these shoppers are doing, which is looking to more affordable markets, whether that's in the suburbs or in an entirely different metro area where you're, you'll find that housing costs are a bit lower. That's one way to help. The other is to make sure that you have a good handle on your budget numbers. So get pre-approved. You can go online on sites like Realtor.com and find mortgage calculators to help you figure out what you can afford and then talk to a lender to get pre-approved, make sure those numbers are correct. I see. All right. Thank you for your advice. Danielle Hale, Chief Economist at Realtor.com. Thank you very much for coming on today. Absolutely. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.